This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. We've got a pretty good show lined up for you. We've got a couple of guests, some great news, and in the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? You well? I'm very well, thank You're not you. Waterlogged or anything? No, no, I love the cold weather. It's good. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. <laughs> and Dr. Jen. Morning, Dr. Shane. Are you with him on that? Well, no, we're very different. As a married <laughs> couple, he's constantly warm and I'm constantly cold. So when he's walking around in a t-shirt in the city in the rain, I'm like, can I have another jumper, please? Now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, here I'm the same with my wife. She's constantly hot and I'm constantly not as hot as her. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Shane, you are leaving <clears throat> yourself so wide open there. Yeah, no. <laughs> also in the studio, it's amazing. We've managed to get her in. Andrea <laughs> from The Bomb. She's too good for us now. She rarely comes in. Welcome back. Hello. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> it's good to have you back. And thanks for bringing this uh, weather with you. It always seems to rain when you come in. It does. I get rained on every single time I'm coming in here. <laughs> Sometimes I forget my umbrella. Today I was very prepared. I have to say, there is no excuse for a person from The Bomb for getting their umbrella. <laughs> my worst nightmare. You know, you it's should literally walk a, my worst nightmare. You know, I... You, you guys don't know, but the other day I was at a conference and I'd sort of, I hadn't read the report correctly and I, I was walking around the city with my umbrella and I was, I, you know, <laughs> sent a message to Andrea and I said, am, am I a fool? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, it was at 4am, you're fool. You know, I think, I think, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> at least you were prepared. I was prepared. You weren't going to be the yeah. silly one. Prepared for absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah, but you, yeah, you should You never. do live in Melbourne though. I do live in Melbourne. Now, let's, before we get into some science news, tell us, um, so what's, cause we're going to talk about some amazing weather stuff later in the show, but tell us what are we in store for over the next couple of days? Well, the, the moment we're in, a, we're about to get really a very wintry blast, I guess you want to want to call it. Um, we've had the quite a few thunderstorms moving across from around four o'clock yesterday afternoon. Another band woke me up at six o'clock this morning. I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure about anyone else, yep. but yep. not so much rain with that one, but a lot of lightning and a lot of thunder. Um, and yeah, we've just got a series of um, bands moving through the state today. Low pressure system to our south, um, so we're still in a northwesterly over Melbourne at the moment, um, and it, but it's not far from moving through in a southwesterly direction, so mm. we'll have that cold wind change. Yep. So basically, I can't really see it getting much warmer today than what it <laughs> what it's already got this morning. Uh, so uh, good day we, on the are couch. We done, are we done with summer? Oh well, it's going to be twenty four again in the middle of the week, but yeah, no high, no thirties or anything. Though. No, I we're think we're done, and we didn't get a forty this year, which no. is. Yeah. Doesn't, yeah, I've noticed that. It yeah. never really got that hot. Well, it didn't even get 39. <laughs> so oh, really? I think 38.6 was our highest, which I feel is, I feel quite ripped off, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if that's the thing you like, for me, I'm happy with a 35. I don't feel like we've had a summer. <laughs> uh, well, you know, that's a weird thing for you. Yeah. Right, very good. We're going to talk about a lot of weather stuff later in the show, though. That's going to be fun. Now, Dr. Ewan, science, um, what's floating your boat this week? Cephalopods. Cephalopods? <laughs> Are they like cephalopods? They are very much like cephalopods. <laughs> However you want to say it, really. I don't know, I'm just checking. Anyway, tomato, more affectionately tomato. known as headfoots. So that's what cephalopod means. Right. So cephalo, head, and, and pod meaning foot. Um, very similar to snails, but they've modified their foot into things like tentacles and arms. Mm. So, so I'm talking about squids, octopus, nautilus, cuttlefish. Um, and they do very clever things, um, a whole range of things that people might know. Octopus, um, Incredible. Uh, and so are squid and cuttlefish. They can change their colour, their shape instantaneously to mm. match in with their environment. They have blue blood. Uh, they do all these complex behaviours, get out of their aquarium, go to the next aquarium, eat the crabs, 
get out of that aquarium, go back to their own aquarium. Yeah. The guy comes back in the morning, says, where are the crabs? And the octopus says, not me. So, yeah. you know, they're, they're amazing creatures. And, and that, that issue of changing themselves relative to their environment, I mean, the thing that amazes me about that is if you think about it, that means there must be other sense the environmental conditions exactly. in all those parameters exactly. as well. Because you can't just say, oh, they only see two colours, but they can mimic the full environment. It's no, they see all of it. They can see polarised light. Too. Yeah, that's extraordinary. They're, they're incredible. And people often think that they're aliens and, you know, who knows. But uh, That's cool. Yeah, so there's a paper that came out in Cell which shows not only do they do all these amazing things, but they can actually edit their genetic code. So, um, obviously we know about evolution and you have, uh, you know, genetic mutations and it affects, you know, DNA and so forth and you can get uh, changes occurring through that. But another way that you can actually have evolution occurring is by actually interfering with RNA, so ribonucleic acid, which essentially helps transfer instructions from genes to protein-making uh, parts of cells. And it turns out that cephalopods get really stuck into doing this. Mm. So to give you an idea of what's normal, for things like fruit flies all the way through to humans, about 1% of the time that occurs... These uh, species, so some octopus and squids are doing it 60% or more of the wow. time. So their their transcripts, you know, their RNA and so forth is highly edited. And so I guess scientists are, um, are speculating that this may explain some of these incredibly complex behaviours they have. Um, and it's very much kind of centred around their sort of the neural areas in their brain. Um, and this may be a path by which they've managed to develop these incredible capabilities they have. So it's very, very cool stuff, yeah. Mm. Does that affect things like their ability to extend their lifespan and things of that nature? Because it seems as though you know, that's where we're all looking to extend our lifespan, so, being able to edit you So do. most cephalopods don't live for very long, about two years. Right. So squid and things. And that's why they're quite sustainable in terms of fisheries. They grow mm. very rapidly and yep. they're high numbers. They don't live for very long, which, again, is incredible when you think about how developed their brains are, their vision and so forth. They have these incredible animals, but they only live for a couple of years, most of them. So who knows whether they can extend them. And they don't even know mm. what the trigger for this kind of um, interference is. So is it, you know, a change in salinity, a change in temperature and experience yeah. they have, and then they start interfering with their RNA. Who knows why they do it but i mean i always make the joke with my students the moment that octopus and so forth can move onto land it's over for humans <laughs> so watch out <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you have to always remember in evolution the goal is to pass on your genes to the next generation so Correct. lifespan is not the goal exactly in fact, it's 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 breeding and population and stability of the species so, yeah. yeah yeah very interesting stuff i I have to say, I love a good octopus. I find them amazing. Ah, incredible. Yeah, it was cool stuff. Dr. Jen. Well, I thought we'd go a bit taboo this morning. You know, popular culture, we like to have our Sweeney Todd and our Hannibal Lecter. Yep. But there's actually very long-term evidence of cannibalism in early humans, and cannibalism's rife throughout the animal kingdom. So there's evidence in everything from fish to insects to spiders, birds, some mammals. You know, cannibalism's not quite as um, unusual as we might think. Mm. And there's evidence going back to more than 800,000 years ago from some of the earliest human ancestors in Europe, which were a species called Homo um, ant antecessor, I think you pronounce it. I've never heard it pronounced. Anyway, so, you know, caves in early Spain. And there's evidence of human bones that clearly have cut marks um, showing that they are the result of, you know, these um, this meat being eaten for food. So we know it happens. We've known it's happened for a long time. But the question is why? Is it because, 
um, our early ancestors were starving or was it a way of just boosting a bit of nutrition or perhaps it was more ritualistic, perhaps there was more kind of, you know, ceremonial mm. stuff involved. And so this is a fair question to ask, I think, you know, why did we used to eat each other? When you can ask a different question of why we don't anymore, but perhaps we won't go there. Not enough for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> not enough Dr. Shane, not on air. <laughs> the Kinsey ran out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Anyway, there's a new study that just came out in, um, in Nature's Scientific Reports, which looked at the nutrition that's actually available in a human body. And this was calculated using four bodies that were donated to science in the 1940s and 1950s. And they came up with a figure that an adult human male has almost 126,000 calories, and 50,000 of those calories come just from the fat. Hmm. which is pretty interesting, and say, okay, well, that's quite a lot of nutrition and that could presumably feed quite a lot of Neanderthals or whoever it is that we're talking about. But then in this study, they compared that to other food that was available at the same time. And in comparison, it turns out humans aren't that nutritious at all. So kilo for kilo, um, horses, bears, boars all have more calories kilo for kilo than humans do and if you're comparing what you could get from one human body compared to other things so i said 126,000 calories well from a mammoth you can get 3.6 million calories and from a woolly rhino you could get 1.26 million calories so what is it on a per kilo basis though because these are obviously very big creatures sure but i guess that the I mean, we'll never know, right? This is all hugely speculative. Yeah, yeah. All we can say is there's evidence that cannibalism happened. Why did it happen? This is just suggesting that perhaps it wasn't necessarily out of nutritional need, that, okay, a woolly rhino is massive and, and you might think it's really hard to catch, but, yeah, but trying to catch another human, that's going to be really hard work because that human, you know, is just as smart as you are and is likely to have a big tribe of people who are going to fight you. So it may be that given mm. how much nutritional benefit you're going to get out of catching one other human and how risky it is for you because you could just as easily end up dead as they could maybe you kind of ignore the humans and go for the mammoths and the rhinos yeah they might be tasty but yeah. they're hard work <laughs> there's a few more calories in the average australian and american right now <laughs> <laughs> well no because they're saying neanderthals would have actually had more muscle mass than modern humans yeah so i guess the result of the study is to say look it's very speculative we know it was done <clears> and perhaps it wasn't so much just for nutritional value unless people were starving more likely there were interesting um rituals yeah. and and other <clears> ceremonial <throat> things going on which we'll, we'll never fully understand yeah it's cool stuff though mm. but i will say if you're trying to cut down the calories folks Avoid the horses and bears. <laughs> <laughs> and beavers. And look at the person next to you right now with that kind of, hello. <laughs> anyway, Andrea's looking at me that way. <laughs> no. Did you have breakfast? I did. Crikey. I'm not hungry. <laughs> right. Just saying you have skin and bones, my friend. Yeah, but uh, it's, all, it's all muscle. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, anyway, I wanted to talk about my favourite old bus size object. Um, this is something I've been talking about on this show for almost 20 years or about 20 years when uh, NASA back in uh, 20 years ago um, launched the Cassini um, space uh, mission to uh, to Saturn. Now, this, this was an object that's basically the size of a bus. It's a very big craft and it had the Huygens probe originally, which it, it dropped down, you know, and, and, and has done some of the most amazing science over a protracted period. But unfortunately, Cassini is now, you know, it's getting old and it's running out of fuel, which means the type of orbital corrections and so forth they need to be able to make around the highly complex environment of Saturn and its moons and so forth mm. is getting to the point where they're not really able to extend it. And there are some very serious considerations that need to be made with this because um, there is one of Saturn's moons, which is actually quite small. It's not a big moon, but Enceladus is a moon that is basically you know, predominantly water 
and nitrogen and things. And, and so if you were to look in the, in our solar system for life, there's a few places you would look. Europa around Jupiter is one of the moons that has similar features. Um, this moon of Saturn has, you know, heat below the surface and it's believed that it might be a location where you could find life. And the last thing you want to do is crash a probe that started off on Earth with some mm. grubby paw prints or something on it. Not that NASA does that, but that, you know, actually making 100% sure that we don't transplant anything there essentially means not allowing it to crash into that moon. So what they've decided to do over the next sort of six months is have this sort of grand final approach of Cassini and it will eventually crash into Saturn. And because there's the chance of Saturn harboring life is, you know, it's a gas giant, that's pretty much zero. <laughs> so <clears throat> basically starting on the um, 26th of April, they will start a series of these sort of what they refer to as dives around Saturn. So the orbit will change and it will get very close to Saturn and do all these um, these sort of orbits that will be relatively um, well, quite different to what they've done in the past. And so with all the instruments and so forth, you know, still working, still doing great stuff. They're going to pick up a lot of things that they didn't do before. They're even going to sort of slot it between the, the rings and so forth. And and it's interesting cool. when they do that. They, I mean, they're still very serious about the amount of data that they can bring back, even in this final six months of its mission. So they're actually going to put, point the ant- antenna in front of the craft so that when they go through that region of the rings where they think there's very little rubble, just to be sure, they're going to have the um, umbrella up, basically, Andrea. <laughs> and so, if there are any smaller objects that could do damage to the instrument package of the of the craft, basically, they'll know at that point. And then, when they do subsequent orbits through the same, same section, they'll they'll actually open things up and have a look. But it's, it'll be pretty exciting. So, I think what you'll find is, you know, if you haven't been watching some of the just extraordinary pictures of, of Saturn that have come out over the last, well, 13 odd years since it's been in orbit, um, since Cassini's been in orbit, there's going to be even more and they'll be even different and there'll be more what data coming through. What a great swan song. Look, I, I, you know, this is one of, you know, we talk about um, the Voyager probes from the, you know, the 70s and 80s. We talk about, you know, which are still going. We talk about the um, New Horizons mission to Pluto, which was just extraordinary and there's about halfway to its next encounter now so it's you know it's it's moving pretty fast but i personally i think cassini is probably the one for me that has just been the most extraordinary because saturn's the jewel in the solar system in a sense it's the mo- one of the most extraordinary objects uh, we have and cassini has just sent sent back so much data it's phenomenal so it's pretty amazing like for me as a completely <coughs> naive onlooker i don't have any background in this stuff the fact that they could come up with a technology 20 years ago that yeah. is still functioning because I imagine the the leaps and bounds that have been made in the interim are just you know astronomical. Yeah. Excuse the pun. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> and and you know this is this is the thing. I mean, you know they they are still coding it up. They're still getting it to do new things. They're still mm. repurposing it. I mean, this this is a great example of just when you know innovative new science is properly funded, just what you can achieve. And they're still doing it. So fifteenth of September, that is the um, D Day for Cassini, oh. um, which will be a bit sad. Will there be a wake. Well, no, I think we'll throw a party and, and, you know, maybe, look, all the images are available. All the data is available online. You can go to the NASA website, have a look around. I mean, some of these pictures, are, you know, I could plaster my walls at home with them of Saturn and its moons. They're just extraordinary stuff. So there you go. Triple. Ah. 
you're listening to Three Triple R, folks. It's Einstein and Gogo in the studio with us now is Dr. Lincoln Stamp. He's from the Department of Anatomy and Neuroscience at the University of Melbourne. Lincoln, welcome to Triple R. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Now, you you're working in the area of stem cells. Normally, we're very cautious when we talk about stem cells because uh, I've been promised that stem cells can give me my hair back, but I don't quite, <laughs> I don't quite believe that yet. Um, but in particular, you're working on, on some diseases that affect the way in which our, our bodies function in, in the way in which our, our gut and digestion works and, and how we actually move, move foods through our system. Tell us a bit about the diseases first that you're, you're looking at and then we'll talk about the stem cell therapies. Okay. So yeah, our research is focused on a particular pediatric disorder. It's fairly rare. It's maybe one in four to five thousand live births. It's called mm-hmm. Hirschsprung disease. Um, and basically Hirschsprung disease is where in these children they're missing the nervous system which resides in your gastrointestinal tract. Uh, and in the kids it's uh, a developmental disorder that occur- occurs during birth. Uh, sorry, during, um, during development mm-hmm. before birth. Uh, where the nervous system is missing in the last part of the bowel. So from their bottom or their bum hole up, they're mm-hmm. missing a variable region of this nervous system and then therefore where the nervous system is missing, uh, the peristalsis can't occur. Um, and unfortunately for these kids, they continue to eat because that's what we naturally do when we're yep. born. Uh, and unfortunately the food can't move past that um, muscular part that has no nervous system. Um, and without some kind of intervention, it turns fatal for these kids. And so, and so the peristalsis is the, the, the way in which the body uses muscular sort of contractions to move all the material through the... Yeah, that's correct. Process. And that's controlled by the nerves that reside yep. within the gut wall. And these nerves signal to those muscle cells in a coordinated manner to control that peristalsis process, which is a contraction above the food and mm. the relaxation below the food to make the food move mm. through the bowel. And, and in terms of the, the standardised treatment for children with these conditions, I mean, what, what do we do now or is it just nothing? Uh, yeah, standard treatment at the moment is a surgical intervention. So... Um, and it's usually quite early in life. So the mm. kids are first usually diagnosed when they don't pass the first meconium, which is the right. first, first stool. tari stool yeah. that they get. That's a sign that they have might have this disorder. Uh, and, yeah, the intervention at the moment is a surgical resection of the t- defective part of the bowel that has none of the nerves uh, and then sewing the normal part back to their bottom. Mm, right. And it's life-saving for these kids, uh, but maybe 50 to 80% of them have ongoing complications for the rest mm. of their life, including uh, incontinence or um, constipation. Are, are there kids also for, for whom the range over which the problem occurs is greater than what you can surgically correct for? Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, it's a very variable disorder. Um, so some kids can have a very, very short segment of no neurons in their bowel and some kids can have an entire absence of neurons for their entire intestine. Mm. Uh, and for those kids, life is very, very tough, mm. uh, involving total parental nutrition, so tube feeding for the rest of their life. Mm. Yeah. Now, um, in terms of... You're talking about neurons here in the gut. I mean, yeah. this is something we've heard a little bit about, but how, how do we know that we have actually have neurons doing this work? I mean, are these the same sort of neurons that we have in the brain? Yeah, very similar uh, to the neurons in the brain, but uh, amazingly, the neurons in the gut function almost autonomously from those in the brain, so we actually call the enteric nervous system, the ones in your gut, mm-hmm. the second brain. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so they I, I use that brain a lot. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and as a colleague of mine once said, if we actually had to um, consciously digest, well, we'd get nothing else done during the day. Right. Yeah, because you have to think about consuming, digesting, and then moving the food through. So the fact that the enteric nervous system can do that autonomously from the brain is, is really important to us functioning. <laughs> so trusting your gut is actually more real than, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's another brain. It's I more trust my gut to move the food. Yeah. Um, so, that, I mean, that, that brings on another question, though, is that we have these um, neurons in the gut. In terms of a comparison of capacity and total number and so forth, compared to the brain, are we looking at a very 1% or is it comparable? Um, 
there's substantially more neurons in your gut than there is in your spinal cord, but right. there's obviously a lot more in the brain yep. than there is in, because the brain is a total neural tissue, whereas in the gut we've got the muscle cells as well as the epithelial cells that line the GI mm. tract. Um, and so the proportion compared to the brain, I couldn't tell you exactly, but it's probably it's lower. much lower. But mm. the diversity of the different neural types that's in the brain is very similar in the gut, and they obviously play very similar roles as mm. well. Now, stem cells, uh, they seem to be everywhere in our bodies. They seem to be used for everything, which kind of makes sense actually you know our bodies have these incredible levels of complexity to them and they start yep. off as we start off as just a few cells what's the scenario here in terms of using stem cells to correct for these problems yeah, so the idea would be, I guess, there's different types of stem cells you could use. Some groups, so there's a really beautiful pub, uh, study published from a New York group recently where they used pluripotent stem cells. So they made these pluripotent stem cells into neural progenitors or stem cells and then transplanted them into the bowel. But our research is focused on um, the resident neural progenitors or stem cells that exist within the GI tract. So mm-hmm. our group and others in the UK have shown that in, in animal models, but also in humans, that these neural stem cells exist in your gut, out even into adult. and in the normal regions of the bowel of these patients with Hirschsprung disease as well. So the idea would be to go to those normal regions of the bowel, like up in the small intestine rather than the distal part, isolate these stem cells and then expand them in culture and because they would be the patient-derived cells, hopefully you'd avoid some of the immunological rejection issues and um, then transplant them back into the same patient, into the distal bowel, to hopefully make a new enteric nervous system where one was congenitally absent. Mm. So in terms of the gut, there's all this research also about the microbiome. Um, is there any interplay between the microbiome and these you know, these cells we're talking about and would there be a need for complementary treatments? So I guess I'm thinking, you know, are there differences between the guts of people who have this disease and people who don't and what do we know about that? Yeah, this is a really hot topic at the moment, the microbiome, of course, and uh, I think it was maybe two years ago a really beautiful study showed that there is a very intimate interplay between the microbiota um, and some of the immune cells in the gut called the macrophages and that these actually communicate then with the nerves in the gut to control the motility in the gut. So I think maintaining or establishing the right microbiota might be really important in these patients as well. Um, Whether it actually influences the disease for these kids is hard to tell because when there's no peristaltic process, the microbiota don't get flushed out like they normally Mm. do and therefore you can't really tell whether it's an overgrowth um, of a particular bad microbiota for that reason. Now, you're taking stem cells from people who have this condition. Why is it that you can take these stem cells out of them and you don't end up with the same problem when you start with that origin of cells yeah. compared to the patient? I mean, obviously, the problem they have is coming from those stem cells originally as well. How, yeah. how do you fix that? Um, so we believe that it's actually a, maybe a quantitative problem rather than a qualitative one. Um, so the nerves that uh, make up your enteric nervous system are derived from a group of cells during development called the neural crest mm-hmm. and they exist just uh, below the hind brain during development and they migrate out of the neural tube and enter into the foregut so your stomach or esophagus during your development and then they migrate within the gut wall as it's developing to colonize the whole GI tract okay and in these kids they just don't make it to the end right okay. and so we think if we can get the stem cells from the normal part of the bowel grow them up in sufficient numbers to transplant back into that distal region which is missing the nerves that it might be able to uh, rescue the uh, lack of peristalsis. Jeez, it'd be amazing if it's that simple. That yep. It's just the positioning. 
So do you, sorry if this is a silly question, but do you actually have to do anything to convince these stem cells to take on this role of acting as, as neurons? I mean, do you have to tell them you need to be a neuron now or do the stem cells somehow recognise there's this big problem and, oh, that would be a good idea to, you know, uh, take on this role? Yeah, this is something we were really concerned about, actually, is how much do we have to educate the stem cells before we put them back in? And because there's so many different neuron subtypes, how do we get them to become all of those in the right proportions? Mm. But in some of our previously published studies, we actually showed that when we transplanted these uh, neural stem cells that we'd isolated back into the bowel, um, that they actually turned into the right types of neurons and actually in the correct proportion. So wow, maybe there's some kind awesome. of signalling from the muscle, which is which it does during development, of course, um, telling the cells what, what type of neuron to become and how to behave. It's amazing. Lincoln, um, j- just in terms of where you're at at the moment, because I can imagine any parent or family member who would be hearing this, I mean, this, this is... I, I know you said the proportion's low, but for those who actually do have this condition, the impact is extremely high. So where, where are we in terms of the work at the moment? And, and can you chuck a guess into when, when we'll be sort of able to use this in a clinical setting? Oh, yeah, this is a very uh, common question for <laughs> yep. anyone working in the stem cell field um, and an important one. And, and as you said, although it's not very common, I guess, parents of the children with this disorder and we think it's uh, obviously a very important disease mm, to study definitely. um as far as when will this get translated to the clinic uh, that's pretty tough to say uh, we've made huge leaps both us uh using our endogenous neural stem cells but also some of the other groups around the world using the pluripotent stem cell uh, mm. techniques um translating this to humans obviously we're going from small animal models so it's going to be a scale thing but also you need to go through all the right avenues of yep. clinic, clinical yep. studies as well so i guess probably without getting people's hopes up we're probably many years away yeah but probably decade you know a decade or two is probably in the realm of reason yeah absolutely yeah. well just recently uh they've started transplanting uh induced pluripotent stem cells into the eye of macular degeneration yeah. patients in japan and that's ips cells were made for the first time in 2006 mm. so the rapid rate with which the stem cell research is progressing around the world is exciting um but of course we've got to balance the hype against the hope and we don't want to get patients um hopes up too soon yeah so. indeed lincoln thanks so much for coming in today and good luck with this work i mean it, it will it literally is life-changing will have a massive impact on the families involved with these particular conditions and i know it's not that just that one disease but a, a range of diseases that this will help as well so good luck keep up the good work and hopefully we'll talk to you in a decade with something um that's clinically available done so thank you so much for having me dr lincoln stamp is from the department of anatomy and neuroscience at the university of melbourne 102.7 Uh, you're listening to Einstein to Go Go. We are on three triple R in the studio with us now is Sarah Stevenson, Dr. Sarah Stevenson. She is a research fellow in the neurogenetics research in neurogenetics research at the Bruce LaFroy Center for Genetic Health Research at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, and is an honorary in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Melbourne. Did I miss anything, Sarah? <laughs> no, that sounds like everything. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, Jesus, uh, you've got a nice shiny new building down there you work in. We do. It's yeah, a lovely it cool? building, yeah. Very cool. Now, you're, um, you, but even though we've got this amazing new facility, you've been doing a lot of travel over to the Jackson Laboratory headquarters in the US. Tell us a bit about what's over there. What takes you there? Okay, so the Jackson Laboratory in Bar Harbor in the US is a big mouse facility. Mm-hmm. They specialise in mouse genomics. So big mouse is in lots of mice, not... <laughs> lots of mice, not big mice. <laughs> not horse-sized mice, mice, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so they have about over a million mice in their facility um, and they provide a lot of mice around the world but they also have um, a research arm mm-hmm. and they have a group of mice there that are called the Collaborative Cross and the Diversity Outbred and they are um, genetically diverse mouse models and I'm interested in using those so I travelled over there to perform some experiments. So, so this is something I think would surprise most people. I know when, when I first heard that all the mice being used in experiments were one gender. <laughs> I was like, really? That seems odd. Like, given given we're doing research for everyone, that, that's Why some people do that. Um, it's not a, it's not um, recommended now. Mm-hmm. Now it's recommended that you use both genders. But it really was to save on costs for right. the majority of the time, or people incorrectly assumed that things wouldn't have um, sex differences. Right, right, yeah, incorrectly, I Incorrect. think is the key, key word. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, especially conditions. So what, what gender were they typically? Uh, males, typically. Wow. Okay, so you wouldn't want to be a male mouse. Not necessarily. Um, or so, a female human. Or a female <laughs> human, yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow, well, you know, I think both those statements are still yeah. true. Um, potentially, depending on where you live. But uh, tell us a bit about the diversity, though, because this is obviously going well beyond gender. Mm. So what what's the diversity we're talking about in terms of these mice and why is that important? Okay, so these mice represent about 90% of the diversity of the mice species. Okay. Um, and And that's important because... Traditionally, the mouse models that we use in research are actually generally um, inbred. Mm-hmm. So what happens with inbreeding is you uh, breed uh, siblings, male or female siblings, for 10 generations, um, and you end up with an inbred mouse that basically possesses about half the genetic information of a normal mouse right. because all of the chromosomes are identical, the two copies of the chromosomes. Um, and what happens when you do that breeding is you get this release of recessive alleles and so not all mice survive the inbreeding process. I can imagine. So what you end up with is a group of mice who are a representation of a fitness that survives inbreeding Mm. and then we're using those mice to model human disease. Mm. Humans aren't inbred. Well, most. (laughs) True. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's so you you need the diversity really because otherwise you're essentially looking at these really. I mean, I would imagine that the mice that survive this inbreeding process are actually quite unusual. I, I mean, this is not the super mice or the strong mice. These are the weird mice. Yes, yeah, and and that's what it is. So, if you basically imagine that you know that you are a product of inbreeding, and then we're trying to represent and model disease for every human mm. in you. Yeah. Um, and that's what we've been trying to do. And there's reasons for it. And th- when they began doing it, there were valid reasons. What What are those reasons? Because when you put it those names, it just, <laughs> it just sounds, sounds really yeah, okay. it sounds bad. So, yeah. so um, when you're looking for the uh, effect of a high effect gene, so say you want to look at a gene that causes a disease. So if you have a knockout of this gene, it causes a particular disease. The idea being that the only genetic difference between the mice that you have is that genetic mutation everything else is exactly the same Mm. so you're only modeling the difference of that mutation whereas if you had a varied genetic background you'd have all these confounding factors yeah and so it makes sense in that in that it's kind of spotlighting exactly what it is that you're Mm. looking at yeah i suppose hope 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 for the best that all the genes don't interact with each other (laughs) (laughs) they don't i mean surely not now now bring back to the sort of the actual work you're the 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 conditions you're studying though you're focusing on parkinson's Mm. disease 
So just give us a quick rundown in a minute of what Parkinson's disease is first up. Sure. So Parkinson's disease is a movement disorder that affects individuals typically over 65 years of age. It can mm-hmm. occur at any age, though. Um, and individuals with this um, have a slowness of movement, um, and it progresses. And at the moment, we don't actually have any treatments that can slow or halt the disease progression. Okay. Um, we've been using the same symptomatic relief since the 1960s. And um, one of the things that... I think is holding back progressing this is having appropriate animal models to modify and find treatments. Um, mm. We haven't been able to recapitulate uh, neurodegeneration appropriately in animal models. Is that right? Yeah, and that's interesting. I think one of the reasons is these um, the way in which we've been using the models, and we just need to change it a little bit. So you, you're going to you're going to attack this by having a crack with the diverse yeah. mouse models. Has that started? It has. So I went over to the US um, last year in August for six weeks, and while I was there, we performed a, a very large scale screening um, mm-hmm. process of 32 of these strains, um, and we. We did the um, experiments over a three-week period and then once we finished, we uh, brought the samples back to Melbourne where we're processing them now to try to find pathology and identify strains that are susceptible and show a phenotype similar to what the human disease is and those that are resistant. Hmm. It, it, it seems, I mean, coming back to Jen's comment, it seems to me amazing that this isn't happening Everywhere, you know, like this sort of approach, you, you, as you as you say, that we're we're not uh, approaching it in that sort of diverse way that you would expect. Is, uh, I mean, have we made progress prior to much progress prior to now, or has it been really? A we have. It depends on the. It depends on what you're studying and what your question is. So, mm. for um, Parkinson's disease and neurodegeneration in general, they're considered what are they're considered complex diseases, yep. meaning that they're not the result of a single gene. They're a result of multiple genes interacting with the environment and with the person's life history. Mm. So for those sorts of illnesses, mm. I think um, diversity of strains is incredibly important and finding the appropriate model. Um, and one way I like to think of it is so about two out of 100 people will get Parkinson's disease. Okay. So if you line up 100 people together... Potentially five have the potential to get Parkinson's disease, but only two will actually get it. Mm. Now, if you're taking the wrong person to study Parkinson's disease who never had the potential to, st- right. to get it, mm. you're not going to find a treatment. Yeah. And I think and, that's and what... You, and you copy that person 10,000 yes, times. Yes, and you're using a clone. <laughs> with, with their identical brother. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, yeah, so, that, so that's interesting. So in, in terms of the... Um, the, the, the way you'll interact now back with the, the Jackson Laboratory, I mean, is that all done now and you just... No, no, I just caught up with some of them at a conference last week actually right. and we're planning to do some more things moving forward and they're moving forward, um, they've got a big funding for Alzheimer's disease to do a similar right. type of study um, and so we'll hopefully move forward doing more and try mm-hmm. to find some models so that we can put them out there for the for people to use and start to test mechanisms and find treatments. Yeah, so I, I, I assume there the, the key is finding finding the mouse in, amongst the many different yes. types, creeds, colours, all different types of mice. You get the one that actually does get Parkinson's yes. when you do certain things to it, and, and that once you've found that mouse, you can start doing some exciting stuff. Mm, that's well, exactly right. sounds to me like we need one of these diverse facilities here in Australia.
It certainly yeah. does. Well, uh, <laughs> if you're listening out there, rich people, uh, you know where to put your money. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us, and um, good luck with this. It's really interesting. As I say, when I heard about the the, the gender thing, I was like, oh, wow. And, and now hearing about this version, it's uh, I suspect this is where this stuff is all going, right? I yeah. mean, presumably in the future. So thanks so much for chatting to us, and good luck. Thanks very much. Dr. Sarah Stevenson is a research fellow in neurogenetics research at the Bruce LaFoy Center for Genetic Health Research at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and Honorary in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Melbourne. Three, triple, You're listening to 3RRR. In the studio, we have uh, Dr. Ewan, we've got Dr. Jenny. Andrea is here from the Bureau of Meteorology. I'm Dr. Shane. Some of you are probably aware that there is a March for Science occurring pretty much worldwide. There is a Melbourne chapter of that, and it's on the 22nd of April, which I think is a Saturday, a couple of Saturdays hence. It's a Saturday. Saturday? It's I have a function. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Not science-related, but that's all okay. right. Um, yeah, I think I'm fishing, which I may have booked before this anyway uh we'll see uh that's in the morning but uh, if you want to check it out folks uh, have a look at marchforscienceaustralia.org and you'll get all the information uh from there it's uh you know it's uh, one of those things where we try and remind people how valuable science is which is what we do now um one more thing before i forget uh megan munty who's one of the guests who's often come on and talk about talked about uh, stem cells quite extensively on the program. Uh, her and some colleagues have a new book coming out. It's being launched uh, this coming week um, on April 18th, and it's called Stem Cell Tourism and the Political Economy of Hope. This is one to have a look for, folks. Uh, Megan's talked about this totally inappropriate industry that's come out of stem cells being fakely used for medical procedures. And it's interesting just having a guest on a moment ago talking about some of the real stuff. This is a, a lot about some of the other things that are, that are going on. So stem cell tourism and the political economy of hope. Keep a lookout for that. It's being released, uh, launched this week. So that's exciting. Andrea, yes. what is going on? <laughs> with the weather? It's been um, the last four or five months. It's just been extremes. Yeah. And not so much in Victoria. Um, we've kind of mm. missed out on a lot of it, actually, and it's been sort of other parts around the country. Um, when I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about, I was thinking of some of the big weather events that we've had around the country this year and or late last year and early this year. And I was thinking, oh, they all kind of happened in some ways in isolation, but in actually they kind of all fed off of each other and resulted mm-hmm. in the weather that we've had here in Victoria. So um, I thought I'd, I guess, start off by talking about a bit about what we have or haven't had this severe weather season, if we like to call it that. Um, so we've had very little in the way of bushfire. Um, threat. We've had a, a couple of bushfire days where we've had those mm. strong cold fronts coming mm. in, really hot temperatures ahead of them. Um, but really compared to what our normal bushfire season is, it, this has been particularly quiet. Um, we've had very little in the way of thunderstorms. Um, we've had a couple, again, a couple of really big days. So the 28th of December for me is the one that really stands out, possibly because my poor friend got married that day um, (laughs) at 4.30 when that massive downpour happened. Right. Um, We were were at Melbourne Airport waiting to fly to Tasmania and the... All of the planes were grounded for hours. Right, yeah, yeah. Sky yeah. So we remember flat. it well too. <laughs> yeah, it was phenomenal. Um, that was just like being in Darwin or somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Um, we've had February was quite cool. Um, so we didn't have, as mentioned earlier, we haven't had a 40 degree day this summer. Um, and, and February was 
it was probably around average, but in actual fact, March, which is the first month of autumn, was actually recorded across Victoria as a whole. If we averaged all of the temperatures, March was actually warmer mm. than what February was this mm. year, which is quite interesting. So I thought I will go through and talk about some of the kind of cool things that have happened in the atmosphere this year that have led to some of these kind of maybe non-events in Victoria and then some really big events. Mm. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was um, a little term called precipitable water. And I think I have talked about it on the show once or twice before. Um, but for those who haven't heard me talk about it, precipitable water is if you took a column of air from your head um, up to the very top of the atmosphere and then condensed it down, um, it is the amount of water that you would have in that column. Um, and there's more water at the, like the surface and less at the top of the atmosphere. Um, and basically we measure it in uh, millimetres just as the way we would measure rain. Um, and and what we've found is that over well, this year in particular, we've absolutely smashed some of the records for precipital water, uh, not just down in Victoria, but in Queensland, in South Australia, in Western Australia. Um, it's been a really key player this year. So if I, gra- if I grabbed all that water, I mean, what, what sort of numbers are we talking about in terms of millimetres? For- yeah, so when I first started hearing about precipitable water right in my early career when I was forecasting up in Queensland, if we got 30 millimetres yep, okay. measured, yep. that was like, oh, yeah, we're going to get a pretty good rain event out of that. Yeah. I remember when I moved down to Victoria and saw 30 millimetres down here, everyone was like, oh, my God. The precipital yeah. water is 30 millimetres. Like, yeah, yeah. it's going to be... The sky's going to fall in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so t- to put some perspective on what we saw in December, um, on the 28th or the, to the, when we sent the balloon, we measure it through sending balloons up in the atmosphere. When we sent the balloon up uh, the morning of the 29th, so the day after the big storms, we recorded 48 millimetres. Wow. Which is huge for yeah, Victoria. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was, that's actually been the, the highest we've seen, at least in the last 25 years, um, in Victoria. So that was a, a huge thing. Um, to up in around Cyclone Debbie time, um, not that long ago and clearly very well covered in the media, mm. Cyclone Debbie. Um, Queensland, uh, Brisbane, the day after the really heavy downpour, yep. um, in Brisbane recorded over 70. Wow. millimeters and the previous record for up there had been 68 millimeters mm. so this is huge and i guess the really important reason to be talking about precipital water is not only because obviously when we get these really high values we get really high rainfall um, but it's about the changes in and what precipital water means in the long term so basically mm. we've had incredibly warm sea surface temperatures this year um, so we're obviously getting evaporation of that water what's really important is that when we're getting increases in temperature um, so if we're having a, a one or two degree um, increase in our atmospheric temperature, the atmosphere has more ability to hold more water. <laughs> so a one degree increase in temperature means that the atmosphere can hold 7% more water. Mm-hmm. So when you're thinking about climate change, the warmer we get, the more the, the more moisture the atmosphere is going to be able to hold and therefore potentially the more rainfall in big events that we're going to get. So, so that was what I was going to ask you. So when you have this higher amount of precipitable water, so, you know, like you mentioned around Victoria and so forth, what does does that mean more rainy days or more big rainy days? I mean, how does that play out in terms of the, the weather, the day-to-day weather? No, and that's an important um p- thing to understand really because all the climate modeling suggests that with climate change we get we're going to actually have a drier climate Mm -hmm. certainly for southern australia anyway um so not seeing more rain days but when it rains it's going to really rain it's going to really rain (laughs) 
Yeah. And, and that's absolutely what we've seen this year. There was huge yeah. storms over in South Australia again where they broke records. Um, over in Western Australia this year, there's been a incredible number of tropical lows that have formed. We've only had six, I think it's six cyclones so far this season. Mm-hmm. Possibly Ernie pushed us over to um, to seven, but um, six or seven cyclones this year. We probably expected there to be in roughly around average, which is 11. Uh, 11. Um, so it's been a relatively quiet season. Um, but these tropical lows have been sitting off the Kimberley, just mm. kind of forming to the west of Darwin um, and then coming down over the Kimberley and the Pilbara. And it's been phenomenal rain up there. Um, they've had uh, flooding, major flooding of the Fitzroy, uh, not the Fitzroy, that's in Queensland, um, of the, oh, I've forgotten the name, um, but up in the Kimberley, just several times they've had major mm. flooding up there. Um, some of that's transferred south, so Perth, um, which normally sees around... Uh, 20 millimetres in February recorded 114 millimetres in one day and that wow. was as one of those wow. tropical lows moved southwards, connected up with a cold front yeah. coming across um, and 114 millimetres in a day Huge. so yeah, it's all really important stuff for us to be now, looking now, at. Now one of the things that I noticed this year, and I'm not, maybe this was just my imagination, but you, you know Andrew, I have a fascination with synoptic charts and so forth <laughs> and <clears throat> yeah, it's, hey, you know, um, and it seemed as though this year there were some weather patterns that just seemed to get stuck Like, as in, normally these things are pretty transient across our continent, but these ones are like, yeah, it was there yesterday, it's there next week, it's there two weeks later, and they just seem to sit there for a long time. Was that my imagination? Absolutely not, and I'm so glad you asked me, and I have to say that I didn't actually um, feed you this information. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just a junkie for this shit. (laughs) I know you are. But it is one of the next things that I wanted to talk about, because um, Queensland... South, parts of South Australia and New South Wales had absolutely record heat waves mm, in January yeah, yeah, and yeah. February this year. Um, and actually some of that can be related to what was happening with the tropical lows up off the Kimberley. Mm-hmm. So when we get these upper level, um, low pressure systems, they're kind of feeding off what we call vorticity advection, um, which I'm not going to go into too much, but basically, um, they feed high pressure systems in the middle levels and they strengthen the high pressure systems. So what we saw this year was this middle level high pressure system sitting pretty much over the centre of the continent, it was causing the high pressure systems at the surface to be a little bit further north than what we normally would see. So we actually had that kind of a lot more transient through our part of the country, but then the highs were kind of sitting a bit further to the north um, this year. And so parts of Queensland and New South Wales, as I said, huge, um, again, temperature records were broken. Um, Moree in New South Wales experienced 54 consecutive days above 35 degrees between the 27th of December and the 18th of February and that's the longest spell ever that they've seen um, temperatures that high. That's can, can I, can I ask, yeah, what was the second longest spell? You know, like, oh, it was hear, around 50 days. Okay, yeah, so, so, so for Four days, which is actually, when you think lot. about it, a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But even, even, even the 50, like, it's not like there's a hundred of those. There's probably a, no, a couple of those right. in the century. Yeah, one, yeah, correct. So, and smash that and another one. It. Yeah, oh, and, yeah. The, and, and there were so many locations like that. Um, there were so many daily temperature records that were broken throughout mm. that event. That it was, and it was really... Um, um, I guess the prolonged nature that was m- maybe more interesting than breaking those daily records, um, mm-hmm. but it was just so consistent um, and, and yeah, kind of related to those tropical lows off Queensland. So, yeah, it was really, really, um, from meteorologically, it's just been certainly a year of extremes yeah. um, and and quite fascinating. And, and, yeah, down in Victoria, as I mentioned, we sort of had a February that was probably around average. Um, but then what's happened in March is that those high-pressure systems have moved back down towards the mm. south and we had that 
really Indian we, summer, yeah, which yeah, yeah. us um, city folk, we love it. <laughs> um, we, but then, of course, the um, farmers are really yeah. waiting for their autumn break at the moment. Yeah, so yeah. Um, always sort of think about them whenever I complain about the rain. So hopefully the rain today is helping them. But, yeah, we're definitely in for that kind of first winter outbreak yeah. after today. Presumably, though, I mean, I, not a farmer, but, you know, grow the odd vegetable in. And you want more rainy days, not flooding events. Exactly. That's I mean, right. it's just, it's just, and I've got to think that this has got to change the salinity of the ocean over time too. I mean, these big flood events would just rip the salinity out of the soil and straight down into the sea. Yeah, everyone's looking at me like I'm crazy. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, I mean, look, it's all, it's all related and it's going to be really interesting to see as we, as our climate warms, um, we can project all the different computer models are telling us, all the climate models are telling us what we're going to see. And I really feel as though we're starting to see it. I remember when I first started thinking about climate change, it was that we were going to see um, more extremes and mm. the extremes were going yeah. to be more extreme. And that's, yep. I would have to say that that's what we're seeing. Certainly that's what we've seen this year. Yeah. We've seen records broken all over the country. Yeah. But, but in ways you guys wouldn't have predicted. No, that's, that's the right. thing. Like the diff- it's different to what you would have necessarily thought of as, you know, oh, bigger cyclone. So it's yeah. just like, but these other weird events that are really quite uh, amazing. So yeah. Andrea, thanks so much for coming. It's always great having you in here talking about the weather because, um, there's, especially at the moment, there's so much going on. That's been such an interesting period. So, uh, it really has. We'll, get you, we'll get you back soon. Thank and you. And if there's ever a drought, we know how to break it. We just invite Yeah, bring her in. Brings <laughs> yeah. like a every time she comes in. Dr. Jen, thanks so much for today. Good to see you. Pleasure. Great to see you. Dr. Ewan. Thank you very much. Talk again soon. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We'll talk again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.